Well, if you've got your Bibles, I hope that you will open them up to Luke chapter 20 as we continue in this, uh, this great book of the Bible that teaches us about Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And as we consider our discipleship, as we consider what it means to follow after God and to let him be our Lord and our King, not just to save us, but to make us his own possession, that we might serve him with our life, that we might worship him with our very being, means to move from a focus on the temporary, which is what we do naturally as human beings, focusing on our here and now, the world that we live in and the circumstances that surround us, to shift and begin to look at eternity and to not only look forward to eternity, but to live for eternity now. And that shift is not always easy. It is not a natural transition for us. It is one that we must trust in the Lord God if we're going to experience in our lives to wake up each day thinking about the return of our Lord, to to wake up each day knowing that what we see and smell and hear and feel and taste is, is just temporary and that we have a greater reality, that we are moving towards every minute of every day. That eternal focus is something that we must be sanctified to experience uh, in greater ways as the Lord builds us into better discipleship. And, and the verses that we're going to be talking about today, I hope will help us in that regard, will help us to be eternally minded, and will help us in that shift as we take little steps each day to be more focused on this God who loves us so much that he would send his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and die on our behalf. And so if you have your scripture open to chapter 20 of Luke, we're going to begin, we'll be reading several verses today, but we're going to take it a chunk at a time. So let's begin by looking at verses 27 uh, through 33. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose life, or whose wife, rather, will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. This passage that we're studying today is the only time that the Gospel of Luke mentions the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group within Israel who held particular religious views and opinions, much like the Pharisees. They had a set of doctrine, a way of looking at the Lord God and interpreting His Scripture that made them identifiable as Sadducees. They were skeptical of Jesus for a number of reasons. They disagreed with him in some doctrinal points. One being the things that Jesus taught regarding resurrection. Now, none of the Sadducees' writings have survived through antiquity. So all we know about the Sadducees, this religious group, we know from reading about their opponents and their opponents' interactions with them. They were a high priestly sect. They claimed to have descended from the high priest who served during the time of King David's reign. His name was Zadok. You can read about him in 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, The Sadducees are associated more with those who were wealthy in society, whereas we've seen that the Pharisees often identified really well with the common man in Israel. And the Sadducees were usually very friendly with the Romans as well. Uh, They were were amenable to the, the policies of the Hellenists. A strong connection existed between the Sadducees and the priesthood in the temple. So they generally exerted more influence in the temple 
Then in the synagogues, whereas the synagogues was the place where you saw more influence from the Pharisees, the Sadducees had more of an impact with their teachings and their opinions in the temple. Though they are only mentioned here in Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke was also the author of the book of Acts. And in Acts, he spends a, a bit more time talking about the opposition that the Sadducees brought towards the church, particularly probably because of the claims that Jesus had rose again and would one day rise from the dead, those who believed and trusted in him. Matthew's the only gospel that really spends much time on these Sadducees. Uh, and they were frequently grouped together with the actions of the Pharisees in that gospel. Both the Sadducees and the Pharisees were influential, though they had very different theological viewpoints. And so I would like to kind of line out what's different between a Pharisee and a Sadducee so we don't confuse the two groups. First of all, the Sadducees tend to speak more, teach more, and focus more on human free will and on the volition of man, their ability to choose to do what was right and to follow the covenant that Israel had made with Moses. Whereas the Pharisees affirmed the sovereignty of God. Now they taught a lot about behavior as well, but they spoke more lovingly of the sovereignty of God and his, his influence over everything that happened in the world. Sadducees denied the existence of angels and demons. They wanted to deal mostly with what was right before them, whereas the Pharisees, their theology included and made room for the supernatural. So the Pharisees believed in demons, they believed in angels, but the Sadducees did not. Pharisees embraced written and oral traditions. We've talked about the Mishnah and the Midrash and how the Pharisees often added to God's word these extra layers of, of do this and do not do that so that they could be particularly adept at knowing the details and also living them out to prove their worth as religious people. The Sadducees, on the other hand, denied the oral tradition altogether. And even of the written tradition, they heavily favored the Torah, the first five books that were attributed to Moses. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that a life existed after this life. But the Sadducees denied that. They believed that the soul would die with the body, that all we knew and all that we are would exist in this world only. So despite their very significant influence in the time of Jesus and the days of the early church, the Sadducees are going to almost completely disappear after about 70 A.D., and that makes sense when you consider the fact that they were so strongly tied with the temple. In 70 AD, the temple is burned to the ground and their social influence is then completely undermined. And so we don't really hear about them as a people from the year 70 AD forward. But during the time of Jesus Christ, they exhibited a lot of influence. And then in the time of the early church, they presented great opposition to those disciples who began to follow after the teachings and the way of Jesus Christ. <laughs> These particular Sadducees that we're interacting with today attempt to discredit Jesus by attacking his doctrine concerning the reality of resurrection. People were still talking about the recent resurrection of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, that it happened only a few weeks, probably before this Holy Week, where Jesus finally makes his way to Jerusalem. The very fact that Jesus has predicted he will die and then rise again makes this confrontation particularly interesting. Christ's whole victory over sin is contingent on his ability to keep his word and rise up from the dead on the third day. Death's power over us can only be defeated 
if those who trust in Jesus do indeed live again after this life is done. The Sadducees haven't been a group for almost 2,000 years. And so some might say, well, why are we even reading about these men? What's so significant about a people whose ideologies have died out? Well, their questions, the questions that they ask of Jesus regarding the resurrection need to be answered. Because even though that people group really isn't around anymore, their questions will help us understand what is really true about resurrection as we study Jesus' response to them this morning. The Apostle Paul was clearly convinced that believers need a strong understanding of the doctrine of resurrection. If you have any need for evidence of that, this week in your personal devotion times, I urge you, go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you'll see how passionately convinced that Paul was that the resurrection is crucial to the truth of the gospel. Now, the Sadducees approached Jesus with a, a hypothetical scenario. This illustrates a, a, a Hebrew family law that was recorded in the Torah. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, it'll be on the screen for you. Verse 5, the scriptures instructed Israel, says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, this is very far removed from our cultural mindset. But in Israel, this was a law that if there was a woman who died before she had had a chance to bear a son for her husband, or rather if her husband died before she had a chance to bear a son to him, then her husband's brother would then take her as a secondary wife and would help her conceive a child. That child would then continue on the name of their family and would be, in essence, the son of that deceased brother. This was really, really important to the Israelite people, especially because they were a people of covenant promise and because part of the covenant promise that defined them as a people group included their inheritance with God, which included a piece of land, a part of this holy land, this dwelling place that was to be theirs forever. So this what-if scenario has a woman losing not just one husband, not just two husbands, but seven husbands in a row. This is a very unfortunate woman. I didn't know her husbands. Maybe she wasn't so unfortunate. But, uh, but none of them is able to provide a male heir for her. Each one of them follows the rule of Deuteronomy 25.5 and marries her and tries to give her a son, but not one is able to do this. And so all of them now have passed away. And their question is, if resurrection is real, Jesus, then who is this poor woman married to in the life to come? If this resurrection that you talk about is a reality, then what kind of a confusion does it present to a scenario like we just presented to you here? Who does this woman belong to? Who is she really married to? So this far-fetched, in some ways, example, I'm sure this never has happened in the history of man, but this far-fetched example is designed to cast the idea of a resurrection in a confusing light. It's slanderous towards this doctrine. But it actually does more to reveal a major mistake in the way that the Sadducees and many other people for that matter think of the life to come as essentially some kind of a continuation of the life that we know now. They were wrong in thinking that the resurrection would simply just be like life here on earth but somewhat enhanced. 
Let me read to you the words of Leon Morris, great commentator who's done a lot for the uh, Christian community concerning the book of Luke. He says, Jesus' questioners had failed to realize that the life to come will be essentially different from this life. Where the doctrine of resurrection was held among the Jews, it was usually envisioned as an indefinite prolongation of life, though no doubt without modifications and improvements. All enemies would be overthrown and delights would be multiplied, but essentially it would be the same kind of life as the present one. Now that's the way many people thought in this day. The Pharisees who believed in resurrection often thought that direction. And even we are prone to make that mistake sometime, aren't we? Even though we have a more developed picture of heaven, because we've been blessed and benefited to have the full canon of Scripture, when we spend time thinking about heaven, it's usually through the perspective of an earthly person. We might think to ourselves, when I get to heaven, what's my mansion going to be like? This room that the Lord God is preparing for me. Will I get to see my uncle that I miss so much? Will I get to see my friends who I haven't seen for so long who passed away too soon? Will I be able to do the fun things that I do here? The things that I missed out on in this life that I didn't get to do, will I then get to do them because it's heaven and I get to be happy now? So if I couldn't dunk a basketball here on earth, can I dunk a basketball when I get to heaven? Okay. Will I sleep there? Will I eat there? Will my pets that have died and passed away, will they be in heaven with me? We have a hard time grasping a heaven that is much removed from the life that we live here on earth. But what little scripture does say about heaven reveals that it will be radically different from this life. Our misguided attachment to the physical is going to be obsolete when we get to heaven. When Matthew records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and he says that we are to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not decay and thief cannot steal, he's not saying store up earthly treasures in a heavenly place. It's a better container to keep your earthly treasures. He's saying earthly treasures are not worth your time and your effort. Store up heavenly treasures in heavenly places, they are better for you. They are superior for you in every way, shape, and form. Jesus once told a man to sell all that he had, give it to the poor, and come follow after Jesus. Now that's not a command that we all have to literally follow in order to be Christians, but we do all need to trade our earthly mindset for a heavenly one. And that's a hard process. It takes time for us to realize what that really means. We've got to do that to such a degree that if it was Jesus' command to all of us that we should sell everything that we have and give it away, that we wouldn't have such a hard time saying, all right, if that's what you see what is best for me, Jesus, this stuff is temporary anyway. You can have it. It's yours. Take it. Yes, Lord. Yes. I want you more than I want that. There will be no death in heaven, Right? So the idea of enjoying something that is temporary, think about it, will have lost its thrill. So much of life is disposable for us. We will not be obsessed with living in the moment and seizing the day in heaven. The reason we think that way here on earth is because death is reality for us. And so the wonderful thing that you enjoy might not be here tomorrow. 
The thing that you are having a great time doing right now, you probably won't get to do it tomorrow. And since that thing is giving you a temporary happiness, we feel like, oh, we want to prolong that. We go from one experience to another. In heaven, things don't die. Things are not burned up. Things are not consumed. So we're going to have to think of a whole new way to enjoy life. God's going to have to teach us a new kind of existence. My focus group meets on Tuesdays and I'm happy to be back meeting with my folks. We just had our first meeting last Tuesday because the Bible, of course, but also because of the delicious snacks that my fellow focus group people bring on Tuesday nights. We have kind of a rotation. And one of the things that I was blessed with this last week is my brother James Galvis makes an incredible jalapeno dip. It is so delicious. And I love that dip. And every time he makes it, he makes me a little extra thing that nobody else knows about that I get to put in my refrigerator and eat later on. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Much blessed. Much blessed. And I love that stuff partly because I can't make it. I don't know how to do it. And so I just depend. Every once in a while, that blessing drops into my life. And I enjoy it, and I enjoy it, and I enjoy it. And then it's gone. And I can't have it again until Brother James brings it to me. Heaven is not... I'm not... I'm not not twisting your arm, James. <laughs> not twisting your arms, but, uh, but listen, listen. Heaven is not like that. Your joy will be complete in Christ in heaven. You won't go from one experience to the next. You won't go from peak to valley. You will be with Christ. And you will be experience a type of contentment that is going to blow you away from the perspective you are in right now. Do you realize that the otherworldly joy of being with Christ will completely overwhelm your present interests. Being near to God without the problem of a sinful nature, getting in between you and Him, is going to be such an amazing reality that it's going to make all the other joys that we've experienced in this life really pale in comparison. I want you to imagine for a second, just for a minute, think with me. Imagine you were born into some kind of internment camp. You... You were born into this situation where your people were oppressed and you had to live in confinement. You were raised in this. Everything was very, very basic. You only had just what you needed to survive. You weren't given freedoms. Your food consisted of potatoes and bread and water. Every once in a while, a little bit of protein, a little bit of vegetables, just enough to get you through. But every day was kind of the bland, same old, same old. Until finally, decades later, after living in this for your whole life, whatever war or conflict was keeping you locked up in that internment camp comes to an end. You are able, finally, for the first time, to walk through this world as a free man. For the first time in your life, you eat a strawberry. All you've eaten is bland boring food and now you can experience the joy of biting into a crisp apple you get to enjoy sugar for the first time ever you get to savor a piece of bacon I knew you'd make noise of bacon somehow in our culture bacon is universally some sort of like wonderful food but anyway perhaps before you were set free you looked forward to meal times simply because you were starving You looked forward to that little bowl of rice that you got or that little provision, even though it wasn't something to celebrate. You looked forward to eating because you were starving and you needed whatever you could get and so you, in some ways, enjoyed that blandness. 
but now you are set free. Now your life perspective has changed. You're able to experience the luxury of eating not just to survive, but as a real blessing of the senses. And I tell you that story because I think that entering into heaven will feel something like that. That everything that you knew for so long and you thought was great, was what you wanted, what you needed, you're going to have a whole new type of blessing that you haven't really been able to experience before. Or maybe you've tasted it before, but now it'll be realized in a way that is unhindered. Whatever you like here, whatever puts a smile on your face and helps you enjoy your day, will be totally outshined by the new experience of walking side by side with your Savior. No earthly joy will be able to compare to what you're going to experience there. So in heaven, some of the things that brought you joy in this life will likely no longer be important to you. Brother, sister, do not mourn that fact. You are more than your interest in movies. You are more than your devotion to a particular sports team. You are not defined by your hobbies. So if you never score a touchdown again because there's no football in heaven, you won't miss it, all right? Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, 40 through 44 says about the resurrection. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. You see the difference he's trying to bring to our attention here? He's trying to paint for us a vivid contrast of existence. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Are you getting excited about heaven yet? It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see the great transformation that is described in these passages for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So when God resets our perspective and we experience the eternity of heaven, not only will our sin nature be removed entirely, We'll be glorified in that regard, but our affections will be glorified as well. This is one of the things I'm looking forward to greatly. I will no longer want stupid stuff. I will no longer be content with things that don't matter. My affections will be glorified, and I will desire what is pure and holy and true once and for all. We will be taught and enabled to enthusiastically love that which is actually worth loving. Praise God for that promise. In our passage here in Luke today, Jesus responds to the Sadducees by pointing out one of the key differences in the life to come, specifically the idea that marriage, as it applies to the next life, is going to be different. And in doing so, he exposes the Sadducees' argument as an illogical argument. So we continue in Luke chapter 20, verses 34 through 36. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the re resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. The life to come will be far different than they expect it to be. Man will become like angels. Now in the Greek, the particular word that Luke uses there is very, very interesting. It's a compound word, isangelos. It is a combination of isos, which means equal, and agalos, which means angels. So Jesus doesn't say we will become angels. He could have just said agalos if he wanted to say that we would be angels. He's saying that we will become more like angels in some, some very specific ways. So this business that a lot of people buy into about dead people becoming angels, that isn't actually supported biblically. Angels are a different type of creation than human beings are. Let's be careful not to let Hallmark build our theology for us. All right? Angels are not, so far as we know, made in the image of God. But you, as a human being, are made in the image of God. We don't need to covet their place in the heavens, for we will join them and be what God made us to be. But our existence will change in some ways to become even more like that of the angels. And the passage gives us two specific ways in which that is true. First of all, we will no longer be vulnerable to death. Just as an angel cannot be killed, we have no example of an angel dying in all of Scripture. We have examples of angels falling and angels being fallen, being punished and being bound, but we have no example of an angel dying. And when we get to heaven, folks, those who trust in Christ will never taste death again. Their life will be consistently life. Secondly, we will not be given to marrying one another. In other words, marriage is a beautiful gift of God for a time for our time here on earth. Even referencing the angels here is a subtle rebuke towards the Sadducees because remember, the Sadducees don't even believe in angels, right? So Jesus is, again, going back to another area of their doctrine which is off-center and needs to be corrected. So the marriage covenant is not forever. Marriage only applies to our time here on earth. And that is why when we share our vows with one another, it is so common to hear the phrase, till death do us part. In heaven, there is no death. Therefore, there is no need for new life, right? If no one dies in heaven, we don't need to be producing new generations of people to replace the ones who have died. So there is no real need for the marriage covenant anymore. The loneliness that Adam experienced by not having another will be completely satisfied in his oneness with Christ and with the church. And so marrying is not going to be necessary when we get to heaven anymore. And I'm going to be honest, not everyone likes that. Not everyone wants to hear that truth. To some of us, our relationship with our spouse is one of the greatest gifts we've ever received. To know and to be known, to have someone that we can share life with, someone that we can serve, someone that we can care for and draw near to, and learn to understand inside and out, someone who can know us. To try and imagine life without that relationship is really hard for us to wrap our brains around. But, but consider for a moment. God gave this blessing. Marriage is a gift from His hands. Would it be appropriate for us to say, well, I love my marriage so much that I can't accept, I cannot embrace this idea that there will be no marriage in heaven. That's not a, a marriage, or that's not a heaven that I would want. Can you imagine how out of place that would be if we consider that the very gift of marriage was a gift from God's hand? 
how could we bear to love the gift more than the giver of the gift? To try and imagine life without that relationship is hard for us to consider, but God is the one who gave it. He knows what we need. Won't He provide everything that we need? Christianity as a religious organization can often become very man-centric. Focus too much on the people aspect of religion instead of focusing on the God that we are here to worship and serve and adore. You might hear people say, well, I go to church because my family goes to church. I go to church because my friends are there. I go to church because I really admire the pastor, because the worship leader is so talented, because someone is mentoring me and I'm getting attention and I'm growing. What do all those statements leave out? Jesus. We should be in church for Christ, for the person of Christ. We should be here to love Him and be near to Him and because He is our greatest affection. I have what I would consider a great relationship with my wife. We, we care for each other very, very deeply, but I am very happy that I am not her first love. I'm happy to be my wife's second love. She loves the Lord God more than anything. And I am very grateful for that fact, and I attribute the health of our marriage to the fact that we love first what really deserves to be loved first, and that is God himself. When we put our spouse in some way above the Lord God, then all of the balance of marriage gets put out of whack and our expectations upon one another become unrealistic. We desire to get from our spouse what only God can give. We poison the very covenant that we have made if Christ is not first in our relationships. Think about this, friends. Every joy that you experience from your spouse here on earth will be more fully realized in your relationship with Jesus in heaven. Knowing and being known, serving, caring for, sharing experiences together. Marriage was intended to be an earthly relationship that would in many ways train you to desire the greater relationship that you can have one day with the Savior. It is a beautiful shadow of a greater thing to come. Now this is no, in no way meant to degrade the beautiful covenant of marriage which is a gift that we should rejoice in, which is, which is a wonderful blessing from the Lord God. And, and marriage itself is a practical laboratory for learning how to agape love better than we did before. So as, as those of us who are married in this room consider this idea that marriage is not forever, how should we respond to it? Well, first of all, if you are married, I encourage you, glorify God in your marriage for as long as you live on this earth. Make sure that the covenant that you have made with your husband or your wife is honoring to the Lord God. Be honest with one another. Care for one another. Point each other towards Jesus Christ to that greatest love. Pray for one another and with one another. Seek the Lord together. Glorify God in your marriage for as long as God lets you be married together. Secondly, don't let your spouse take God's place. Take stock of your relationship and your affections towards one another. Are you getting constantly aggravated at your husband or your wife? Could the reason be that your affections are not coming from Christ where they should be coming from? And you're putting too much of an emphasis on that woman or man who God gave you to be a helpmeet and to be a blessing, but he did not give her or him to you to worship. So never let your spouse take God's place in your life. Keep that priority in order for his sake, for her sake, and for yours. And thirdly, trust the scripture. 
that tells us that marriage is something neither you or your spouse will need when this earthly journey is done. And if that is the case, then God has something better in store. He doesn't take away something good to give you something lame. God is giving you something great and giving you heaven. We should look forward to it. Now, having debunked the argument that these Sadducees presented, Jesus cuts to the heart of their concerns. That is, the validity of a resurrection whatsoever. Whether there is, in fact, a true rising of the dead, whether there is life after this life is of primary concern to Jesus. Luke 20, verses 37 through 40 says, But that the, de- but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So let's try to break this down together. Jesus points their attention to what he describes as the passage about the bush. Because there were not yet verses. There were not yet chapters in the scripture. They had uh, established the canon of the Old Testament, but it wasn't divided into the convenient points that we have it divided into today. And so he cites something that they would all recognize. Oh, the passage about the bush. Yes, where Moses encounters the burning bush in the wilderness, and his charge is given to go back into Egypt and to redeem for the Lord God this people who had been slaves for 400 years. And he points out the fact that Jesus, or that God in that passage of Scripture, calls himself, describes himself to Moses as the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Three men that had at that point been dead for some generations. Now Jesus could have referenced many Old Testament passages here. He could have gone to Job chapter 19, verse 26, which says, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He could have referenced Psalm 16, 9-10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Isaiah 26, 19 is a passage he could have referenced. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12.12 is another fantastic passage that points forward to a life upon, uh, that exists after this life. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But Jesus doesn't go to those passages. Instead, he takes these Sadducees back to the Torah, Exodus 3, 6, because he knew that the first five books of the Old Testament were the only scriptures the Sadducees accepted as divine. If he went to these other passages of scriptures, they could easily say, oh, we don't really see those as divinely inspired. They're useful, but we don't have to base our theology off of those. We study Moses' word. And so he brings them to Exodus 3, 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
And so Yahweh describes himself here as a God of three, perhaps four men who had been long since dead. We're used to hearing that, but Jesus challenges them to think about it more critically. He says, God is not the God of the dead. What kind of a God do you serve? Is your God ruling over people who don't even exist anymore? What kind of power does that show? He is the God of the living. So to reference these forefathers that were so important to the nation of Israel and to say that he is currently their God shows that those individual souls have not been extinguished. They live on, and God is their God. He continues to provide for them and lead them and rule them. So it follows that since these men are still alive, a resurrection of some kind must exist. Death in this world is not the end. What a joy we have, friends, in knowing that the 80 or so years we're going to live on this planet is not all we've got. This is not all we have looked forward to. There is so much more to life than the suffering and the pain we see around us. And I can only imagine the kind of joy and, or the kind of hurt and pain that people experience when they wake up in the morning thinking this is the best that it's ever going to be. Friends, this is just a taste of what we're going to get in heaven. It is only a shadow of the true world that God has designed us to live. Jesus' logic was so sound on this matter that even the scribes acknowledged that he's spoken well. The scribes who consider themselves Jesus' enemy. They say, well spoken, Jesus. There's nothing we can say to refute that. Remember, to be a scribe was to have a certain job. You could be a Pharisee and be a scribe. You could be a Sadducee and be a scribe. It was a job, not an ideology. So some of those scribes that said, good job, Jesus, were likely Pharisees that were tired of trying to convince the Sadducees themselves that resurrection was real. Jesus did their job for them. But the resurrection is not just some oddball doctrine. Resurrection is a reality of life and it is essential to the, pro the process of God redeeming man. Life does not stop. When your lungs, the ones that you're using right now to draw in breath, that you're filling up and emptying, when they stop doing their job, when the blood that flows through your veins right now no longer makes its circuit around your physical flesh, when the activity in your brain degrades down to zero and your heart and your flesh have truly failed once and for all, you have reached the end of life on earth, but you have not reached the end of life itself. The soul lives on. The question I have to ask you this morning is, do you know the state in which it will endure? forever. The passage in Daniel 12 that I read earlier makes it clear some will be resurrected to life. Others will be resurrected to a punishment, to shame. The only thing that separates those two groups is their standing with Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Is your life in the Son of God? Have you seen your sin clearly enough? Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the fact that the things that you do, though they might not compare to the wickedness of the world around you, are still wickedness and that your sin is against God and God alone? Has God made it totally clear to you that there is no type of penance that you can do to wash clean your sin? That you could be the most religious person that you know 
that you can do the, the most good deeds you could possibly afford to do and it wouldn't get you a step closer to heaven. Do you know, however, that the God who loves you and cares for you does not desire for you to perish, but that he has made a way miraculously for you to know God by doing the work himself, by coming and taking on flesh, by walking in a body like you and I walk in, and by experiencing our form of death, by suffering on the cross, being ridiculed and mocked and taking the sins of mankind upon his own shoulders, that this Jesus was willing to die, though he had not earned death by sin. He did that so that your sin might be punished in full and your account before God would be completely clean. That is the difference between one who is resurrected to punishment and one who is resurrected to life. We cannot experience life without Christ. When Jesus noted in Luke chapter 20, verse 35, that only those who were counted worthy would enter into this blessed state of resurrection. Did that make you raise your eyebrows? Did you think to yourself, well, what does it mean to be worthy? I, I didn't think that salvation was about our worth. Well, Luke had already lined out previously in his gospel what he means when he mentions this word worth. Look on the screen at Luke chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. It says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So in that passage of Scripture there, he was giving instructions to a man who invited him to a dinner but there was some mocking going on there and there were people who were not invited to the dinner because they were poor and he's instructing them that their hearts are wrong and he says that you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, the just if in this life you are trusting the Lord God and seeking after him. Luke 18 then goes on to say, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is building for these people is an understanding that your status in heaven is not based on what you can do. It's not based on your performance that outshines others. Your status in heaven is based simply on your ability to come before the Lord God and humbly say, I need you. I cannot save myself. Take my broken life. Use it however you desire. I call you Lord. I repent of my sin and I trust in you. The humble heart is the heart that will be exalted before the Lord. The heart that is humble enough to say, Christ, without you I have no hope. Make me your own. Friends, the final proof against these Sadducees who hoped to slander Jesus' theology, the final proof against them will not be from Scripture, of which they only trusted a small portion. It will not be from Jesus' authority as Messiah, which they rejected. It will be in the form of an empty tomb. Whether those Sadducees could come to terms with it or not, Jesus lives. And you can live too if your faith and hope and trust is in him. The scripture says that he is the first of many who will experience the resurrection of God. My heart's plea is that if you have not yet made Christ your Lord and Savior, that you will not hesitate, that you will do that today. The scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation. 
So whatever questions you have, whatever thing that is holding you back from saying yes to the Lord God today, I pray that you would not leave this place without pursuing the truth. Because this life here on earth does eventually come to an end. And when it does, everything that comes after is determined by your heart posture towards Jesus Christ. Have you loved Him? Have you received Him? Are you in Him? I pray that you are today. Let us bow our heads together as we conclude.